Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for Episode 7. Each episode is a milestone. I cannot express enough gratitude that you continue listening. Thank you. Now I have a favorite ask, and that is to please leave a rating and review. It helps raise our rankings and find more listeners. Today's guest is scenic designer Wilson Chin. He designed Next Fall at the Helen Hayes Theater on Broadway. Off-Broadway, he has designed at Second Stage, The Roundabout, The Public Theater, Lincoln Center, and Manhattan Theater Club. Regionally, he has designed for Arena Stage, The Huntington Theater, La Jolla Playhouse, and The Old Globe. Opera designs include the Lyric Opera of Chicago and the Canadian Opera Company. And he has been nominated for the Lucille Lortel and Helen Hayes Awards. We recorded a separate introduction with Wilson. You'll hear that discussion first, immediately followed by our previously recorded conversation. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, everybody. This is a preface to Wilson's interview that we recorded over two weeks ago. Since then, a lot has happened in the world. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. We've had about two weeks of Black Lives Matter protests going on throughout the United States and also worldwide. While our previous conversation was just related to art and finance and and nothing to do with social justice, we just feel like we want to address that. Just to be aware that we're not ignoring it and, and we're not in a vacuum, like this affects everything. Not good. And, and like I focus on art and finance because there's inequity there. But if people are killed, then they're never going to have a chance to even make money. And, you know, it's actually all kind of interconnected because, you know, I've been doing a lot of like reading and listening and learning. Once you kind of dig in, you kind of like learn how deep our lives and our country and our like um, economy is like based on white supremacy and black racism, it's all kind of based on the model of black slavery and like using and abusing black bodies. It's so deep and it's so eye-opening and it's so terrible. But at the same time, like we're all participants in it. There's no way to not be a participant in like the American economy. So like we're all complicit in it as well. So like the first step is just at least being aware of it. And admitting it, like admitting that it exists. Yes, saying the words of white supremacy. In this pandemic time, we have so much time on our hands. We have the time to like focus on it and to deal with it and to go out and do the work. It's kind of like if there's any blessing in the time we're living in right now is that we have time to... And also we have to like, you know, our industry is kind of in shambles right now and we're going to have to rebuild it anyways. So we might as well rebuild it to make it a better place, to make it the place that we all have wanted it to be this whole time, but have have never been able to. There are people and groups that are sort of leading the charge on that, Um, yourself included, because I found myself signing petitions that you put out there. That just happened yesterday. There's like this whole new movement that literally started less than 24 hours ago, which is called We See You, White American Theater. There's a website and everything, uh, like www.wecu.com. W-A-T. You can go on, you can read the statement, you can sign the petition. I mean, it just started yesterday with like 300 co-signers. I didn't personally, but as a group, we signed this letter. And now it's like, I think the petition is like, you know, up to 30,000 signers. And uh, it's only been less than 24 hours. So who knows what it'll be like, you know, a week from now, a month from now. That's great. Because when I signed it, it was at like 2300 or something. So I, di- I didn't realize it was this young, actually. I just assumed it had been out there for a week and I hadn't seen it. No, this has literally been less than 24 hours. So um, yeah, so if, if anyone is listening, you should absolutely go on the website, read it and sign it if you, uh, if you want to support. And, and I think the movement is good. And I think the zeitgeist and the energy is good. And I think theater is a good place for us to work on it because everybody is like-minded there already. Also, I mean, you know, this movement is so 
big and it's so i mean like you know when you learn how deep into our economy into our daily life into the american society that it is it can be overwhelming but then you can just look within our own community our own industry and that's a great place to start right there I've been listening to all these like testimonials from like actors and writers and stage managers where they've just been talking about like all the horrible things that they've gone through in life in the industry. Everything they're saying is infuriating and terrible, but like deep down we all knew those stories. Like we all recognize the stories. Like anyone who works in theater long enough knows those stories and have been witness to them, but we've all like turned a blind eye to them because we just want to keep working. We don't want to make waves. You know, we smile, we make people happy. We're like good collaborators. You know, we're all just like doing our part to put on a show. So like we've all been complicit in this like terrible behavior. And like, you know, like we're talking about like white supremacy. We're talking about white fragility. It's just now that we're none of us are working, we can like collectively say it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people get defensive, myself included, in that I want to say like, no, I'm not a part of the problem. I haven't historically been a part of the problem. People get really scared of that phrase, phrase silence is violence. First of all, it's it's true. It's sort of like with the Jeffrey Epstein thing, how all that happens and people are like, oh, everybody knew about this. We're all aware of it. Yeah, we're all guilty of this. So why don't we just like stop not talking about it and just like put our hands up and say, you know what? Yeah, this is our industry and we're all guilty of it. And let's change. Let's do it now. There's a pay gap between all all the races in the United States. If we're giving more work to people of color or get, giving them better jobs or in just inviting them into the room, that is going to help close that wage gap. Absolutely. It's also tied into finance because there's so much we don't talk about. Money is one of them. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about how much we're getting paid. And race is one of them. We don't talk about that either. We're talking now. So like you're doing your part. You're talking about money. And now we're talking about race. Yeah, I'm glad that you and I are talking because I could easily stay silent on it. I could easily say, oh, I just want to talk about money and I don't want to talk about race. In a way, you've forced my hand or you've, we're just having an open dialogue and I'm glad that you exist for me to do that with. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know what, I would love to hear, because I heard the Chuck Cooper uh, podcast, I'd love to hear him talk about this. You know, because he's been around for decades. He's been in the business for so long. He's such a sweet, nice guy. You know, it's, uh, you know, I'd love to hear him talk. Chuck is 65. He has years. And, and in, in our hour that we talked, he didn't really talk about anything. He said, oh, I was it. my first musical I saw was an all-black production of Oklahoma. And that was it. Like, he didn't talk. But I guarantee he has stories and stories and stories. But now we're, you know, we're in a different time now. Now we're more open to talking about this stuff. It's great. You know, also, I feel like another thing I talked about in the podcast was about how, you know, in this pandemic moment, we are the old dinosaurs and that we're going to have a whole new generation of people who are going to create theater in their own image. That so applies to this moment as well. Like, it's it's been really, like, um, inspiring to go on social media and seeing, like, kids who are just graduating from school really taking up this cause like you know like white kids as well and they're like they're not even in the industry and they're demanding change and that's so inspiring because when i think back on when i first started i would have never said those kind of things i you know like i i'm lay low don't make waves you know all that stuff and it's just so inspiring to see I mean, they're, they really are going to make this industry what it will be when we come back. Yeah, yeah. And I will say that you, just an observation, are very charming. Like, <laughs> like you have a very charming and safe personality. I think the same thing for, for Chuck Cooper. He has a very, like, just charming personality. And it's almost like, I'm going to diffuse life by being charming and focusing on the work, focusing on my acting. That's called code switching. That's where you put on your happy face and be charming for the room so that you're not making waves. We all do that, especially people of color. You know, it's 
you know, like that's what we do in a theater because it's so many people. It's so much collaboration going on. So we are taught to be just like amiable people. And of course, I'm going to continue to do that. But at the same time, you know, as as the movement is called, we see you. <laughs> yeah, I hope change does happen. And it just becomes this sort of like we acknowledge it and we use that to propel us forward. I hope it doesn't peter out. Well, acknowledgement is just like step one, you know, and step two is actually making change, looking around the room and making sure that our productions are equitable, that the people on stage and off stage, that it is inclusive. I think we're going to be reading more about it, about the steps that will be taken. But, um, you know, like acknowledging it is step one. And it's a good step. Yeah. And talking about it for me is a, a big thing. My social circle, we don't talk about it. In my theater community, even though we sort of love to talk about equity and all this, we still don't really address it. Yeah, I mean, that door now is broken open. The, the idea that we can all talk about this. The idea that Lincoln Center Theater can put out a statement that says Black Lives Matters. You know, I mean, that's amazing. Like, so that is one door down, next one to go. Yeah, I love it. Now in this new world, we can talk about all of it. It's great. It's great. All right. Thank you, Wilson. I appreciate it. Yeah. I also love your dog photo because it's a great photo, but I also love that there's like a protest sign in the, like next to you. (laughs) That was literally after a rally. After a rally, we went to a park and there was a dog there and I petted it and there was a photo taken. Wilson Chin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ethan. We're recording this on May 7th, 2020 amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, lockdown, shutdown. Deep in. Are are we in the beginning, the middle, or the end? Definitely not the end. Maybe the end of the beginning. Broadway shut down till June 7th. They're expecting that to go to September, if not like January or March next year. Beginning of the middle. Who knows? I I can't go there. I can't. Because it's it's so far in the future. So much is going to happen between now and then. It's like there's no point in trying to like plan your life don't bother so much is happening week to week um wilson could you give us a two-minute recap of how you got to where you are in your current career sure yeah i'm a set designer i didn't study set design in like uh, in college i studied architecture because i didn't really think that set design was like a real career but i wanted to do it i loved set design i loved theater and like architecture was kind of like close to it and it felt like a real job so that's what i studied and after college is when i kind of like jumped right in and was like i can do this let me let me try at least so it was stuff like williamstown and going to grad school and then moving to new york and assisting for a few years like you know for like three full years full-time assisting and then after that I kind of was like a full-time designer. And um, so it was kind of like a progression to becoming what I am. That's amazing because uh, I always say, like, if I were to go back in my life and do school again, I would go into architecture. It's definitely useful and helpful. And I'm not, you know, unhappy that I did that. On on this podcast, I'm trying to branch out from theater people, but theater people is sort of all I know. But anyway, so I'm looking for an architect so if you know any... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could give you names of people. Yeah, I think they would be like great to have on. Because I just love architecture. I'm a lighting designer, but the architecture is often what makes things look, you know, amazing and different and unique. And it just changes everything. Even though people say, oh, I bet you love a blank stage. I'm like, that is the yeah. one thing I absolutely hate because everybody says, oh, I you agree. can do whatever you want on a blank stage. No. Like, oh, roll my eyes. <laughs> Well, because you need something to light and you have the human body, but you know, the human body is only, we, we know the human body. You need something that people don't know or haven't seen before. So now let's learn about your creative personality. What is your favorite theater show to see as an audience member? Oh, I mean, I love all theater, but I guess musicals are what really brought me into the world. I, I was like a, such a huge musical queen growing up. 
major bad. Still am. Pick one show that you love. Well, I love all the Sondheim musicals. Sondheim was my gateway into the world that I live in now. So I guess some of my favorite songs, like Sunday in the Park with George, in Follies, in Company, but they're all amazing. Those are good picks, not like tap dancing. (laughs) necessarily. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Like I, I, there's like, I'm not a huge Jerry Herman fan, you know, but I, I, you know, whatever. Do you have a piece of art that you love? Like any type of art? Any t- I mean, I, I like all types of art. Or can I, can I change the question on you? Could I say, just because you have a background in architecture, so you probably know, do you have like a favorite piece of architecture that comes to mind? I mean, I love mid-century modern architecture and interiors you know, the, it's just the kind of the the line work, the c- proportions, the materiality. Um, so that's kind of a favorite thing for me. That is such a set designer answer. <laughs> 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 Makes sense. Uh, what is your favorite art book or resource? I love, well, my favorite artist is John Singer Sargent. And so there's uh, this book of his that's just all sketches and I go back to that all the time because the way he draws his line work, his kind of like, his touch is kind of, it, 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 it inspires me a lot. I, I kind of aspire to kind of have that kind of casual, he gets the essence of things really beautifully. It's just, it's, it's also just beautiful. It's like poetry. Okay, so then does that answer the next question I was going to ask, which is when you need inspiration, where do you draw it from? Everywhere. I I also watch a lot of TV and I watch a lot of movies. You know, in my work, it really comes from anywhere and everywhere. I'll go see a concert and be inspired by something I saw there, or I'll just be like walking down the street and I'll see something and I'll photograph it and I'll... I'll I just I'm going to use that. Um, what music do you listen to? All sorts. I love m- musical theater, so I listen to my cast albums. But I also love pop music. I also love like my women, like Beyonce and Katy Perry, and like. I kind of hate listening to Taylor Swift. Like, I enjoy listening to her, but I also just, I, I, sometimes I'm just so upset at her sometimes, which is wrong because I've been reading a lot of articles about how we shouldn't be so mean to Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah, don't be, just, there's no reason to be mean to anybody, really. Exactly. No, we're in a pandemic. We should just have nothing but love for Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know she's not country anymore, but Chuck Cooper's answer was country music. I was totally like, didn't see that coming. <laughs> nice. Well, where is he from? Maybe he's from a place where country music... Ohio. Ohio. Okay. So yeah, okay. It, it does make sense once you know that. <laughs> I love Chuck Cooper. Um, what are some of your hobbies? Now that we're in a pandemic, I'm all about cooking. So I've been making like really simple things like casseroles and soups. But like, I also made a very intricate lasagna over the weekend, several layers that had like a bechamel. And I also made like a cake with a three layer fruits, uh, fresh fruit cake. It was so complicated, but it photographs beautifully. And I- I'm going to put it on Instagram. Um, so I made it just for the photo. <laughs> well, um, what is your Instagram handle? Just Oh, I'm at Wilson Shin Design. Because I feel like people should just go there and look right now <laughs> during the interview because you are totally. very good at Instagram. Well, I'm a set designer and I have a lot of photos. So it's so easy. I have content for days, for years. That's what I do. It's, it's just like a fun little thing to... It's, I basically gave up Candy Crush because Candy Crush was my addiction for a few years. It kind of almost destroyed my life. So I gave up Candy Crush and I took on Instagram. So it's... So I just traded one addiction for another. (laughs) Hopefully people listening five years from now won't know what Candy Crush is because hopefully it will be federally banned from the country and the world. Oh my God. It was, it was, it's worse than heroin. But my, okay. So I got to like level 300 of Candy Crush. I was in the thousands. Okay. You were in the thousands, but here's the story. My honeymoon, all my spare time driving my wife crazy because I was playing Candy Crush. We were playing Candy Crush and listening to the Jersey Boys soundtrack. All of my honeymoon. I've been there. Wait, where did you honeymoon? Hawaii. And you were on Candy Crush? (laughs) (sighs) Well, you know, when you like go back to like shower or like get ready for dinner or something, you know, you have have some time. I'm glad you're still married. (laughs) 
But here's the deal. I think I stopped Candy Crush on my honeymoon because I got to level 300, and at that point, there was only like 500 levels, and they just kept adding oh, levels. this was a long time ago. Yeah, and I thought, what's the point of a game that I can never win? Exactly. There's no end to it. And once you realize that, it's easier to give up because it's like, there's no winning. This will just go on forever. Yes. And and when I was playing, I didn't update the app because I was like, if I update the app and it goes from 500 levels to 1,000, like I will just give up and I will stop immediately. So for a while, I was like, I'm just going to play to the end of this update. And then I finally was like, no, Ethan, that will take you a year. So please stop. Yeah, I had to delete it from my phone. Because I, I, I thought I could go back, and it just no. That's why I don't do any, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, because I feel like if I started, I would never stop. Yes, I'm the, I'm the exact same way. Could you describe your demographics? Because I don't want to assign anything to you that you don't want to assign. I'm Asian, Chinese. I was born in California. My parents were born in Hong Kong and China. Uh, age, I'm in my four, or early, early 40s. <laughs> um, I'm from California, but I live in New York. So I'm in Washington Heights now. I've been in New York now for a long time, like, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Uh, no, it's not. Tw- it's not even fifteen. I guess it is fifteen. Okay. Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a man. He him. He him his. Okay. Oh, and education. Oh, I went um, all the way. I got uh, MFA. So uh, I yeah, grad school. And uh, where uh, undergrad and grad doesn't really matter, but. I'm just curious. Well, sure. Undergrad, I went to UC Berkeley because that's where I'm from. It's also real good. <laughs> um, and then grad school, Yale. I went to Yale. Cool. And then did you just come to New York because you're like, I'm going to do theater Broadway? I mean, I mean, no, who who does that? But yeah, I came to New York because this is where like theater is. It's um, it's where all the theater is happening. And, uh, you know, it was great going to grad school because you just you you move to New York with a ton of people that, you know, so you're not alone. It feels it's it's a it's a good way to move to New York. Yeah. Um, Do you consider yourself bad with money like a stereotypical artist no i think i'm pretty good with money if if yeah i am pretty good i i think i don't know there's there's better but i'm okay when you started out what did your finances look like then the great thing is i moved to new york without any debt because up and that was like the last support i got from my family it was like we're gonna pay for your education and then you're on your own so so that was fantastic to be able to move to New York without student debt. But, you know, but I did start from just that. And uh, so assisting, assisting was a great way to make money um, because it, it, it's a real job and, um, and you're still learning so much doing it. So, you know, that was how I made a living for three years. It's theater is hard. It's I don't like if you it's it's one thing to start from zero. It's another thing to start with like a negative 100,000. It's a crime, which is why when people ask me about like, should I go to grad school? I say like, maybe and also try and pick one that isn't a million dollars because some of these some grad schools are super expensive. I, I went to grad school and my thing was if I can get one that covers pretty much all of tuition or something like that, then I'll go. And if I had to pay for it, I was like, not going. Yep, yep. It's so. it's a huge consideration. Are you a saver or a spender? I, I like to think I'm a, a both. Um, I, I save money. I do that thing where, like, my bank automatically takes out $300 a month out of my checking and puts it into my savings. So that's my way of savings. But I also, like, am not afraid to treat myself when I want to. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I think I'm pretty okay at, at both. I, I just want to point that out because this is something I, because um, for whatever reason, for years, I always try to get people in the arts to open up IRAs. Like when they graduate college, I'm like, and I meet somebody, I'm like, oh, you have an IRA? Are you saving? <laughs> and like, it's sort of a joke because nobody has money when they get out of school. But I'm like, you need to start now. And then I follow that up with, you have to automate it. Or like, I strongly encourage you to automate something, even if it's $10 a month, automating into savings. Because yeah, at the end of the year, it's only $120. But it's $120 that you wouldn't have set aside otherwise. Well, it's also, if you do it for like 10 years, it's kind of a nice sum of money. I'm I'm so glad you said that, because I think that is something I like to hammer into people. It's like, just automate 
just automate, like, please. <laughs> um, are you risk averse or a risk taker? I don't think I'm that risky. Um, I also don't really know like how to take risks because I hear about friends who like, you know, buy property. I still rent. My apartment is a, is a rental and I've been in this apartment since I moved to New York and it was rent stabilized. So I pay very little for what I've got. And, um, I don't know what I would have done without it. But then, like, I also hear about people saying, like, oh, you have to buy something so that one day when you sell it, you get your money back and you make some profit. But I've never done that. So there's, there's like, a certain level of spending and financing that I haven't gotten into. I should probably do uh, – I should probably find a, uh, somebody who's really good with real estate because I think that's a whole podcast episode I need to – I could give you some names. Yeah? I'll give you some names. The, wait, yeah. are they artsy people? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, like another set designer. I'll give you another set. Oh, designer. okay, okay. Yeah, because like it's I I think most art art people rent. Well, most people in America rent. Um but like most people on this podcast rent. But there have been a couple that have bought and encouraged people to do it. But I'm of the opinion that there's no right way. Like renting is right for me and my wife, but buying has been right for some other people. And there's, there's pros and cons to both, because if you buy something, you have to take care of it. Well, and I justify my renting because my place is so cheap. I, I feel like as though I'm not throwing money out the window because it's not that much money. I want to ask how much you pay, but I don't. I'll, I mean, I'll just tell you. It's like fourteen fifty, and I live alone, and it's like a nice big one-bedroom. It's my studios in here. It's, I have room for all sorts of things, and I have nice light if you can't tell. That's amazing. That's awesome. How did you grow up around finance? Did you have good examples or bad examples? Um, I think I had really good examples. Um, my fam- I grew up uh, in a restaurant. My parents ran a restaurant. It was like a family business. My parents worked the front of house, and uh, my uncles and my grandparents ran the kitchen, the back. You know, they worked six days a week, like 12-hour days, for like, you know, decades. Um, so I think I grew up with the mentality of like every cent you make, you work for. Like the idea of like making money out of money was not something I grew up with. So I feel like that's how I still live. I feel like, you know, like I got to work for every cent that I make. And I mean, I know nothing about this restaurant or business that you, your family was in, but now with this pandemic that's happened, we realize that people who work at restaurants, many of them, are in a way just like theater people in the sense of they don't have any savings. If they don't work that day, they're not getting paid. If they take a week off, they don't get paid. Exactly, yeah. No, I, I, that was like my whole childhood. And, you know, there are similar there's, – it's, there's also it's – um, it's like a customer service – that happens during certain hours, you know, like the peak hours are like eight o'clock. There's like showtime, you know, it's like our show start at eight and people start coming into the theater around then. So like, I remember when I was in high school, even when I had, when I was like wanting to like work on shows, cause I would help out at the restaurant and I would be leaving the restaurant when it was starting to get busy. So like working on shows, like, you know, backstage work or like follow spot, it, you know, I felt bad because I was like, bye, mom, bye, dad. I'm going to go do a show right now as customers are coming in. Uh, has there been a political or a social or a personal event in your life that has shaped how you view money? Um, 9-11 happened while I was in grad school. So I hadn't started a professional career yet. The stock market crash, that happened maybe my third year in New York, my career was like building nicely at that time. It didn't really. It. I mean, I, I, I'm. I, I'm really lucky. It didn't seem to affect me. I mean, but who knows? Like, if it hadn't happened, what would? Where would I be? You know, I feel like that. Uh, that financial crisis affected theater in some areas, but not other areas. Like, I think it hit Broadway hard because the commercial theater, it hit commercial theater hard because like, I think assistants were getting less weeks is what I heard, but I wasn't, I wasn't doing Broadway. I wasn't doing a lot of commercial theater. I was doing, I was assisting on a lot of, you know, like non-for-profit theaters and designing a lot of non-for-profit. In that world, it, I, I, I couldn't see any effect on me. 
Have you had any health challenges throughout your life? No. I well, I'm you know, I also never go to the doctor, so I might be like all messed up inside and not know it. Yeah. I'm so far everyone has been healthy. I'm just waiting for somebody to to be like, yeah, just cuz I feel like in in the USA that's a really important question, I think, even though just just because I, I know I'm going to get somebody who's like, yes, I have $500,000 of medical debt. Oh, I, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's a knock on wood and thank God. Do you think about money often? Like, do you worry about it on a daily basis? I, I don't worry about it, but I, I keep track of my finances. Because I feel like if you keep track of your finances all the time, then you don't have to worry about it. I feel like I, I keep it all on not on paper, but on my computer. I have a little, you know, like on your MacBook, you have, uh, what is that app? Like notes. You know, I always have a little notepad, a little post-it note that like shows all of my shows and how much they still owe me. Like, so I always have a running tally of how much money I have coming in. And that tells me how many more months I have left to live. (laughs) And is that how you've budgeted your whole life? Is that like what you consider your budget? When I first moved to New York, maybe like three or four years in, um, my checking account got dangerously low. And I and it surprised me. It was like I went to the ATM and I looked at the receipt and I was like, what? Uh, like that. So, so that was shocking. And I vowed to never be shocked by that again. And the way I did that was I, um, I sat down and I figured out my monthly finances. I figured out like my rent, all of my bills, and I added that, all that up. So that number became like how much I need to make each month. Well, and, then, and then I also tack on like daily expenses. I think back then I gave myself a daily budget of like $20 a day. And I didn't have to spend $20 a day, but like I could save it up so that the next day I could spend $40 a day. So then I had a monthly nut. And I think my monthly nut was like 3000 maybe, something like that, maybe less. Um, and it grew. As the years went on, I was like, I could spend a little bit more. And then I had like an app. I had an app on my phone. It was a, such a basic app. It was called like Balance or something. And you literally can input everything you spend. And then you give yourself a, I gave myself a weekly spending budget. Every time I spot something, I would input it in. And then so then like at the end of the week, I can tell if I've saved anything, if I overspent, and then it carries over to the next week. And I lived like this for like almost 10 years. Like for 10 years, I inputted every single thing that I bought into this into into this app and so it just kept me on track and then so like if you do that then you never have to worry about money because you're just it's you you know exactly how much money you have you know exactly where on track you are that's amazing yeah that's uh you're you're pretty good (laughs) with money (laughs) (laughs) but it's so it's so basic that is like the most basic it's literally addition and subtraction i mean i think basic is important because if it's Anything beyond basic is not worth wasting time on. Like, it, if it's too complicated, it's not helpful. I guess so. Like, that would, that's, like, the basic way of doing your finances. Then the more advanced level is, like, you know, starting to invest in stuff, like buying property or, like, I, well, there's just, like, it can get so much more complicated if you want it to be. Right, that's true. But I think the basics are the most important. If you're not doing something basically, you're never going to invest unless you get a windfall, which doesn't happen. <laughs> At least hasn't <laughs> happened to me yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you have excess money, where do you put it? Um, I, like in my savings account. <laughs> well, okay, lo- that was the way I lived for a long, long time. But literally just recently, like in November, so, you know, five or six months ago, I got a, uh, I, I invested. Wow. Well, yeah, because remember how I would put $300 a month into my savings account? Yes. So my savings account was nice. It was, there was a lot of money in it. And my bank, literal, Chase, literally called me and they were like, you have a lot of money in the savings account. You should be doing something with it. So I went in, I went in for a meeting and they said, okay, so like you should 
do this with your money, like start a portfolio. And so I, I did it. And, um, and then for a few months in there, I was like, this is amazing. And this is, so this was like, you know, like the my, making money out of money. And I would like check it every day and I'd be like, I can't believe I'm making money just sitting, like just having money sit in this portfolio. And then of course the pandemic happened. Yeah. So, so I'm under, <laughs> so I've lost, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm at negative with my money. Yeah. So that's like a level of worry that um, is annoying. And it's, it's also like uncontrollable. It's like, you know, you can't control it going up. You can't control it going down. So it's just like you're at a mercy of this thing. And it was like, you know what? Life was so much nicer when I controlled everything, when I could input every little thing into that stupid app, when, you know, it was like my money was my money and I knew exactly how much of it there was. Saving money does not help you because money in a savings account doesn't make you any money. It's like you have to take risk. Like you have to put it in the stock market or something because – in a savings account, yeah, it sounds nice, like, oh, I'm saving, but it's literally zero. I know. Yeah, I mean, I guess for younger people, though, you're just, like, struggling to survive. It's like, you know, you don't have extra money. Like, that was my whole 20s and, you know, going into 30s, 20s and 30s. I was just living to, you know, I didn't, I didn't have money to invest. Uh, what was a great financial decision you made? I think that thing that I told you about, that app, it, like, when I started inputting everything in my life... That was a great financial decision. It's amazing. And also, is that like an iPhone app? Because I'm, I'm trying to think, like, the iPhone came out in, like, 2006 or seven. It, yeah, it literally, it was one of the first apps. It was so basic. And that app actually doesn't work anymore. That's when I quit. I basically quit because that app went out of business or something. And then when I did, like, a new upgrade, suddenly that app wouldn't work. Um, so I was like, well, I guess I'm over that. I was start. I was slowly starting to like feel like I don't need this app anymore. Because after like ten years or so, it's like you kind of get the hang of it. But I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah, great advice. What has been a terrible financial decision you've made? I'm not going to say you know investing in the stock market because it'll come back. But right, right now, you can. I mean, after the Great Depression, it came back after 24 years. So it'll it'll come back. Oh, 20. Okay, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so, okay, so maybe I'll say that. <laughs> That's like bad timing. Bad like it, timing. It's not in the long run, it's not going to be a bad decision. It just happened to happen at the wrong time for you. I guess so. Well, well my I, I have to think about cuz when the stock market cuz you know it's slowly coming back. Maybe if it goes back to the point where I started, if I could like go back to zero, like no profit, no debt, maybe I'll just sell all my stocks and get the fuck out of there. So I, I say think, don't do that. Don't do that. I say okay, don't just, do that. Just I mean, not, uh, Ethan Steimel is not a financial advisor. <laughs> knows nothing about money. Please don't listen to him. Okay. <laughs> but I would. I, I say because the thing is, even though it's lower now, presumably, however, it's invested. There are dividends that are being added to it, even with it being negative. It's still making money to claw back and continue. That's my opinion. But I understand that security is also important. So if you have control of it versus... Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, we'll, 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 we'll check we'll back in 24 happens. years and see. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Actually, keep track of it. And the day get, gets back to where you're going to make that decision, you can come on this podcast again and we can figure out what we're going to do. So before you make your decision, like come back on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, your income, is it mostly W-2 or 1099? Both. It's maybe like 60 or 70% 1099s and then 30 or 40% W-2s. Because, you know, now off-Broadway, they pay through W-2s. So, so that's changed a lot. Yeah, I, I, not that I do a ton of off-Broadway work, but I do enough to like that it makes a difference. And now California is also switching to W-2s. So that's going to, I mean, once we start working again, that's going to affect my life in a good way. And then also, um, anytime I do any TV and film work, that also pays through W-2s. So the TV work and the off-Broadway work that I've done has really saved my butt during this whole unemployment thing. I was able to get through online really easily. I didn't have to do all the phone calling and stuff that I know a lot of our colleagues had to go through. So because you have so much 1099 income, do you file your taxes quarterly? No, and I guess I should do that. I file them at the end of the year, and then I get like, you know, like I get smacked with like, 
you know, like pay this, pay that. I, I, you know what? I did do it quarterly one year and it was quite nice. And uh, I don't know why I haven't done it every year. Well, and I have an accountant who does my taxes at the end of the year. So I just do whatever he tells me. And it's, and it's worked out so far. Oh, that was my next question. Do you file your own taxes? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I like do my own receipts. So I add up all those numbers of like deductions and um, exp- you know, work expenses. But then I give, I just give it all to my accountant and he deals with it. I give him all the numbers. I give him all that like paperwork that I get in January and February. So, yeah. Uh, I think we already answered this question, but maybe there's more to it. Do you invest? I mean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see how it turns out. (laughs) But so you just went to Chase Bank because they said, come, you need to do something with this. (laughs) Yeah. They literally, they called me. They're like, Wilson, come on in because you should be doing something with this money. So I feel like my whole entire financial life has just been about people telling me what to do with my money. But you went in for a meeting and they just said, how risky do you want to be? Oh, yeah, they did that. They were like, we could do low risk, medium risk, high risk. And I was like, how about low to medium? Wow. I Everybody I know always just says high risk. Well, you know, what, was, <laughs> uh, what I enjoyed was they can they tell you they can they also give you a list of stocks that you object to. Like if there's like, you know, do you, do you not want to invest in like petroleum or, or yeah, oil, like, you know, um, uh, weapon, yeah, you know, a whole list of things. So that, that was kind of nice. I was like, great. Yeah. And I like checked off a bunch of things. That's amazing because I sometimes have that dilemma. Not really. I don't really have this dilemma, but you know, banks are trying to be better about being ethical. So they've started doing that. But when Nicole and I, we invested, they were just like risk. And that wasn't, sort of an option. So I, I wonder, like, sometimes I think, like, we should go back and say, like, we prefer to be more ethical. Yeah, that's, I feel like you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I think we definitely can. It's also, like, what is ethical? Because it's, it's easy to be like, okay, no big oil, no t- tobacco. But it's, I don't, everything's complicated because everything's intertwined. And it's like, okay, so maybe you don't, you know, maybe you don't have a weapons manufacturer, but they're producing like this little piece of equipment for like a medical company. Oh, I know. I know. Anyway, but the banks have figured it out. So at least that's, that's, I think that's better than not doing anything. I mean, I guess I'm still very ambivalent about me participating in this at all. So it's good in the long run. It's going to be amazing and it's going to be great. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. Do you have a retirement plan and, or what is it? My retirement plan is basically whatever the union has been doing with us, um, you know, because we do have the pension and welfare. That's my retirement plan. Yeah. And I would argue that your investing might be part of that, too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Because um, part of my investment is an IRA. Is that the thing that, yeah, you, you can't really touch that until you retire? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I have half of my invested money is IRA money, right? Yep. Okay, yeah. So I have an IRA. Oh, nice. Because sometimes at the end of the year when I do my taxes, my accountant will say, hey, you should put some money into your IRA. Oh, that's wonderful. That's totally a retirement plan. Yeah. Okay, so I just to touch on IRAs. There's two different kinds. There's a traditional and a Roth. Traditional, when you put money in, that money can be deducted off your taxes. And if you do a Roth, you pay taxes on it now. But in theory, when you're old and dying and using the money, you are not taxed on the money. This all seems like basic knowledge that we should all know. Like, why don't we all know this? I feel like Wall Street makes it deliberately confusing so that people like us don't know what we're doing with our money so that they can become the experts. And then we are left to, like, talk about the difference between IRA and Roth IRA on a podcast. I was like, why is it so confusing? Why is, like, this, like, basic vital knowledge withheld? It's stupid. And why is it complicated? But that's a whole bigger discussion. Like, why are taxes so complicated? Well, why is something that's so vital to our lives being made complicated? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I should probably do some research. But I know, I know there has been certain legislators that have been pushing for, like, a public option of an IRA or a 401k, where, because traditionally, it is through your employer. And a lot of theater people don't have, like, an employer. So, therefore, they don't get a 401k like most of the rest of the workers do. It's so complicated. They're working on trying to make a public option where you buy into a public IRA or 401k. And then going from job to job, whatever job it is, just puts money into that 
I mean, that sounds nice. Yeah, it is nice, and they're trying to make it feel like it's getting closer to happening. It's going to happen, but whoever's pushing that, like Elizabeth Warren or something, I just credited her for, it's not her, but (laughs) um, I think that would be a great thing where it's like either automatically started just when you start your first job. Anyway, so I'm I'm hopeful for the future for that because I think we are getting to it because it is just so complicated and so many people, therefore, just don't even start anything because there's so many options. There's an IRA, there's a 401k, there's a, a SEP IRA. It's so complicated. There's life insurance. <laughs> There's, it's yeah. so, you know, and it, it, it's it's systematically complicated, and it's to the benefit of those people on Wall Street. They are deliberately making it complicated so that they can profit from it. Why should you put money in an IRA? This goes back to banks don't give you any interest. So instead of saving, which would be the logical like thing for a human being to do for their own personal budget, we have to put it into the stock market because you're, yes. you don't put it in the stock market, you won't make any money. Exactly. So yes, why is it set up that we have to put it into an account that we can't touch for 30, 40 years, <sighs> when in reality, what would be best for us would just be saving on our own. It makes me upset. Rants from artistic people who know nothing of finance <laughs> and are confused by it. <laughs> it's not my fault that I don't know anything about money. It's systematic. It's the man pushing us down. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my fault. Are there jobs that you have that are more lucrative than others? Do they sort of offset your less lucrative jobs? Generally, work in New York doesn't pay as well as... I do a lot of Lort theater, like regional theater work, and it's pretty good. Um, You can make a living. I mean, I've been very lucky to be able to make a living doing it because I've been able to get enough work lined up every year to make a a living doing that. And so regional theater work pays nicely. Off-Broadway, you know, like the major off-Broadway theaters uh, are pretty good. But, you know, like when you get to the really smaller ones, it's um, the work you do is sometimes can feel a little pro bono. It feels more like an investment in your art rather than an investment into your finances. You know, like summer theaters don't generally pay well. You're generally doing it to, you know, meet new people. And then the best of all is uh, working on like TV or film work, which literally pays like three or four times the amount theater does. So when you combine all of that, you can make a good living. It's a, you can make a living. You and I both know this, working as an assistant or an associate on Broadway. That's nice. That is good stuff. You know, up until just like a couple of years ago, I would sometimes take a week or two of uh, Broadway assistant work because A, it pays nicely, and B, you get to work on a big Broadway show, which is like super fun. And you're, you're still learning. And, you know, like you never stop learning on any show that you do. So, you know, I, I would still do that right now because it's, I love it. And also like, you know, you work with fun people because y- you and Peter are so close. Well, no, Peter didn't do West Side Story. No, that was Jan, Jan Versveld. Have you worked with him before? First time. Is he amazing? You don't have to tell <laughs> we- me. I loved West Side Story. It was so good. I know. And I- I'm afraid, like, I hope you're not one of the people that saw it and everyone else never will see it. Like, I'm hoping it reopens. Oh, I know. You know, what's uh, what's great is I saw it multiple times. I saw it first preview, and then I saw it a couple of other times during previews, and then I went to opening night. And so from from first preview to opening night, massive changes in lighting. You guys, like, really went in there and, like, changed it all up. Not always for the better, but, <laughs> I, you know, it was, like, massive, massive amounts of work. Yeah, I think that'll be a hard show to reopen just because it's in such a big theater. Although maybe that'll be, maybe people can be socially distant in there or something. But I figure it's going to be hard because it has a huge cast. It might be, it might be a while till Broadway reopens. How important has, this? these are two questions that I'm sort of going to combine. How important has your personal support system been throughout your career? And how important has your professional network been? Theater is so much of my life that really the professional and the personal have really super intertwined. Like all my friends are colleagues. So it's all the same. So yeah, like when I moved to New York, it was, I moved to New York with all of my grad school friends, but also I had a huge Williamstown network. So between the two, you know, you, you, I did have a support system and the support system is like super vital. I don't understand how you move to New York without any friends or connections. You know, because when I 
graduated from grad school, I do that thing that everyone does where you write letters to like every theater and every like director and designer. And that didn't really do anything for me. Like the majority of my work came from my colleagues, you know, like people that you're just starting up with. So yeah, like your support system is more important than the kind of, you know, system that is supposed to employ you. When I moved, I'm from Missouri and when I moved, it's like, I don't know people, but because of grad school and everything, I, I knew people, but I think back and it's like the people helped us move in. People helped us, you know, find an apartment. People did so much work. And it's like, if I hadn't had those people, it would have been much harder. I don't know how we would have done it. How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? Oh, I mean, so much luck, but also so much hard work. You have to do, you, you, I mean, you know, you, you can't not be working hard, but then you also have to have luck. Because I know people who just had one or the other, and it doesn't always work out. Yeah, and the thing with luck is like luck, I think, always plays a part. I know a lot of hard workers who have never had a lucky break, and some that are at the end end of their career and never got like a lucky break, but are hard workers. I know, which is why it's like you can't compare yourself to anyone else because everyone's path, everyone's journey is so different, like how they got there. So it's like you can't really copy any path. It's so contingent on so many different things. And, and the other thing with luck, it's like you've had a good career, but like you came from California. Like I'm sure luck played a part into all the shows you've worked on, et cetera, et cetera. But you also like moved all the way from California and worked hard. So like you put yourself in place of any luck. Like if you had stayed in California, some of the things that we might call luck would have never applied to you. Yeah, I guess moving to New York was a necessary step. I don't know if that if you put in the category of hard work. If that was like a life decision. You know, because it's like every lucky break you get, you have to back it up with hard work. You know, like it, every opportunity you're given, you have to pay off on. That's where the hard work comes in. So they kind of, they're hand in hand, luck and hard work. Um, okay, so now some questions from my wife, Nicole, who is a non, non-theater person. So question number one, why don't a majority of artists have any savings or retirement savings? I think because none of us are getting paid that well. So when you're just struggling to pay the bills, when you're living month to month, it's hard. It's, you, you don't have time for savings. There's no savings. And, and your story of saving $300 a month, you know, early-ish on, to me, that's very impressive. So I guess doing a little bit helps. But like, I get it. I get, especially now that we're in the time that we're in now, we're really discovering who is living month to month. Yeah, our struggles are really becoming um, apparent in this moment. The gig economy is sort of the new trendy thing for the last 10 years. I think that has helped in this pandemic with like pandemic unemployment and stuff like that. I think having those gig workers has been good for theater people because historically theater people have just always been gig workers. Like now they call it gig workers, but theater has always been that way. And now a larger portion of the U.S. economy is gig workers. I see. We're not alone. There's more of us out there. And, and we're discovering that hugely here with like restaurant workers and Uber drivers, like that it's a huge part. So now we're having to sort of like face that problem of, oh, if everyone's getting paid on 1099 and not getting benefits and all this, we have to take care of our society. We can't just pretend that those are high school jobs or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. No, hopefully this is a huge wake-up call on how we deal with health and finances. You know, the, the way our government... Uh, capitalism can only go so far. You know, capitalism has to be saved by socialism every 10 years. It's like, hopefully we examine these like structures that we feel that we think are working and they're not working. This has really opened up a lot of exposed a lot. I think it's all going to go back to what it was before once in a year or two, but I think we've had to face some things and over the next 10, 20 years, I think we are going to get some good benefits out of this, but it's not, I don't think it will stick in a year or two. I think it's going to take a long time. Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on who our next president is. Change can happen slowly or it could happen in an instant. 
So this one you're not going to know the answer to, but I'm going to ask anyway. How will COVID-19 affect the future of theater? My answer to that is we can only project so far. Like, let's talk about the summer, let's talk about the fall, but then when people start talking about, like, winter, or, like, next summer or spring, it's like, you know, that is too far. Like, everything is changing week to week. Like, all this, you know, treatments and vaccines and stuff like that. It's like, so I, 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 I don't like talking that far in advance, but I'll talk about, like, you know, the near future. It's just, it's, it's so fast-moving. It's all mushy right now. Somebody starting a career in the arts right now who just got out of school, is that a good idea right now to start an artistic career? Uh, You know, I kind of think that um, this new generation coming up, they, it's going to be hard, but at the same time, they're coming in not knowing the rules so they can kind of create their own rules, which is fantastic. I feel like, you know, like me someone who's been around for a little bit, we're going to be coming out of this, trying to figure it out using the rules that we had before. But it's going to be a whole new world out there. If we're going to try to apply our old old world rules to the new world, it may not work out. So in some ways, I think the new generation is, you know, it's like a whole new world for them. And they're going to, it's their world to create and sculpt and make their own. So... Like, yeah, it's going to be bad, but, you know, like, we are artists. Art always survives. You know, even right now in this pandemic, everyone is, like, creating stuff. You know, like, they're creating it in new and different ways. Like, that will never, that can never die because people just have, people have an innate, some people have an innate need to express themselves in that way. So it's it's new rules, but same same passion. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great answer because it's like, if they can start now and figure it out, then they're going to be golden. Well, when you look back on like previous pandemics, when you look at the, you know, 1819 pandemic, you know, like, and then you look at the years after that, like some of the greatest artists have come out of that, you know, like Shakespeare, you know, when the plague happened, he had only been starting out his career. He had only written like maybe four or five plays before the plague. The vast majority of his work came afterward. And then I look at the 1918, and then you look, you know, like Charlie Chaplin and Noel Coward and Eugene O'Neill, they all started their careers in the years right after the plague. So it's like there is, the pandemics don't kill art. It's just kind of like, it's like a rebirth. You know, it's like, it's like a winter and then spring will come back again and like new things are going to grow. Yep. I love that because I mean, this one is different. Like in my lifetime, I've had 9-11, 2008 financial crisis. This is so much bigger, but yeah. And this is bigger and different, but art has come through the first two and it will come through this last one. Okay. uh, In that same vein, New York has always been a place for Broadway and for theater, a lot of theater students move here to start their careers. But right now with the state of the economy and maybe people can't find day jobs to sort of help them until they can get their art art going or art career going, is New York or a big city, uh, is it still a good idea to go to New York or a big city or should they go somewhere else or should they transition to digital art? I I mean, I feel like I think eventually it'll be great to come to New York. I mean, but right now it might be best to stay wherever you are, shelter in place, and, um, you know, like read, watch movies, you know, like, you know, like you're always, you're always learning, you're always becoming who you are. I mean, I'm in, we're in New York right now, we're both in New York. There's nothing, nothing to see here. Just, Just stay home, nothing to see here. So yeah, I I would say like maybe don't move this summer, maybe not even this fall, maybe in January, who knows. Come come after the holidays. It's just not safe. And there's nothing to see. <laughs> it's like there's no shows to see. So are you in any unions and pros and cons of being in them? Yeah, uh, USA, United Scenic Artists, Local 829. They're fantastic. I highly recommend joining when you are supposed to. I joined, I think when I was starting out, they say they said something like, you can do up to two Lort shows or something like that, and then you have to join. So that's what I did. But they're f- 
they're great. I mean, we get our pension and welfare through them. They they set the contracts, which are good contracts. You know, the off Broadway, the Broadway, the Lords. You know, it's, it's just on every level, and it's a great support system. You know, like I love going to those meetings. I love being on committees. I love being with colleagues talking about what it is that we do. And I and I want to talk about earlier. You had mentioned uh, like Broadway assisting jobs pay well. And the the reason that's sort of a good paying gig is because of the union. Yep, exactly. It's not because they want to pay you money. It's because the union has said, look, if you're going to commercialize it, you, you have to pay a minimum. This is how much you're paying. That's, that's all the union. That's completely the union doing that. I agree. And also, um, if you're go- as a set designer, if you're really good at drafting, um, join the union and get on a TV show because there's so much... TV work out there for someone who knows how to draft really quickly and and well. Okay, so before I joined the union, I opened my own 401k because I was like, nobody's saving for me, so I'm going to do it myself. But once I joined, I learned that the union actually has a 401k option that you you have to take steps to sign up for it, and and you are already opened up your IRA or whatever on your own. But you can set up a 401k through the union and have part of your paychecks go into that 401k. I don't, I don't know if I have a 401k plan. Do I? I might. There's complicated because there's the pension. And then somehow IATSE is connected and sometimes they will have like an annuity situation, which is sort of like a 401k. I think, you know what? I think I do have a 401k plan that I'm not aware of. And, so, and I get a package in the mail once a year and it tells me all about it. And I'm like, okay. But I, but I think there's a 401k, which I think is separate. Man, I should look this all up if I'm going to be blurting this stuff out. But I think there's a separate 401k option that you have to fill out a form and, and, and sign up for additionally. Yeah, I don't, that's not, I'm not a part of that. Um, but I, I haven't signed up for it because I already have mine set up and I like took the time to set it up. So I'm like, I'm just leaving it alone. Um, so now wrapping up, what is your financial goal for this year? For this year? I mean, this is a very particular year. Um, stay afloat. And also, I already have given some money out to some uh, relief funds and stuff just because I, I'm in a position. I'm, you know, I mean, look, I said before about how this pandemic has really exposed who's living month to month and who has saved some money up. And I, I'm in the latter category. So I, I have the ability to help out. Yeah, some of this unemployment money, you know, f- straight from Trump's hand to my hand to like some other hands that Trump isn't helping. So um, I, I, I am doing that. That's wonderful. You and Peter Kazarowski are both sort of doing that. It just breaks my heart every time I hear about a friend who has been on the unemployment phone call, you know, for like hours and hours every day, calling thousands of times trying to get through. And it's like, I feel bad that I was able to get through so easily. Yeah, there's so many stories out there. A lot of people have had difficulty, but many people have have had an easy, pretty easy time. What is your personal goal for this year? My personal goal is while I'm in quarantine to like be productive, to be, you know, not go crazy. I'm not going to like, you know, I'm going to live in this moment, but I do want to like make what I can out of it. So even if that just means cleaning up my apartment, making it nice, make like when I'm cooking, that I'm cooking things that are healthy and that I'm kind of, you know, like my, my I mean, my, my food over the last few weeks have gotten progressively better and more more complicated so i'm growing on that front i'll i want to read some things that i've always wanted to read and just slowly and not um obsessively trying to like be a making the most out of this what would your goal be if money was not an issue if i had all the money in the world I would quit the business. I would get a nice, like, high-rise apartment and a luxury. It's, uh, I, yeah, I would, I would be such a good, rich person. I would travel. There was, there was so much I would do with if I had all the money in the world. Travel. There's, I haven't traveled in so long. I haven't been on a vacation in so long. But this is our vacation now. But also, like, if I had all the money in the world, I would, like, I could, like, give it to like all sorts of causes you know like it would be i would oh i would be like one of those like you know rich white ladies who like goes to like benefits and like on board of directors and stuff like that 
Ooh. Oh, I would. That would. That uh, that sounds amazing. What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started, and or would you give somebody that's starting right now? In your first years in New York, if you are on a budget, then you got to make sure that all of your living expenses are as low as possible, because there are certain things that can just like kill you, like paying too much for rent. Like you got to look long and hard for that apartment that isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg and also it's like i don't drink and like i remember like when when we were all like young kids in new york and i'd see people going to bars and like spending 50 dollars a night on their bar tab and i was like you know what i i can't no i i i'm saving my money because that is too expensive so i think just like living your simplest life just living towards a practical budget yeah that's great um okay final two questions What separates those that have a successful career in the arts versus those that stop or never get started? I mean, I think that kind of goes with what I said before. There are some people have created a life that is so expensive and they get locked into it that financially you want to be able to create a life where you're not constantly having anxiety about money. At some point, that anxiety will make you leave the business and leave New York. So if you can create a life with the smallest budget, you know, like the smallest monthly nut possible, then you can breathe a little bit. Secondly, making sure that because theater is you know none of us are getting paid amazingly we're doing it because we love it because it's like a passion inside of you and because there's like nothing else that you can do if you don't have that passion if it's not all consuming then it can be tough you know if you like realize that it's like you know what there's maybe something else that would make me just as happy and more comfortable i think those people end up leaving the business and leaving New York. And that's fine. You know, we all have to pursue our happiness. We all have to create a life that we can feel comfortable in. So like all of these things, like leaving New York and leaving the business is not a defeat. It's it's actually, it's a, it's a win because you are figuring out that there is something more to life than this. So to me, that's a total win. I love that answer. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, well, <laughs> for sure. I wanted to do the Instagram earlier because I just know people would benefit from going to your Instagram. Well, you know, we should begin with it and then we should end with it. You can follow me on Instagram at Wilson Chin Design. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> I put out really good content. <laughs> you do. You have gorgeous, totally gorgeous photos. Without filters. I mean, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Without filters? There's no, I don't use filters, but you know, like I do use Photoshop to kind of like make, to enhance the lights and darks and colors and, you know, you got to make that stuff look good because, you know, when you photograph your work, it doesn't look like what it looks like on stage. On stage, it looks incredible because it's actually illuminating. It's actually the color balance is right. So when you take your photos, you have to go back in and make it look as good as it did when it was on stage. And so that, you know, your camera doesn't do all the work for you. Well, and here's a side tangent, but if you see a filmed live theater event, most of the time, all the time, they bring in a separate lighting director or a lighting designer to adjust those levels for the camera. Yes. You can't film a theater show. It will not look right. Yeah, when you translate from one medium to another, there it doesn't translate verbatim. You got to get in there and make it work. <laughs> okay, um, any more places for them to look you up? My, oh, I have a website. How about that? www.wilsonchin.com. You know what? Just look me up. I, I'm on Google as well. Okay. <laughs> All right, Wilson, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. Thank you. This was fun. That was our interview with Wilson Chin. My takeaways were keep a budget, simpler is better, keep living expenses low, find a low rent and or a rent-stabilized apartment. Renting is not throwing money out the window. Buying works for some people, but it isn't necessary for wealth building. Don't go into debt for college or grad school if you can help it. Even with a market crash, with a long-term outlook at retirement, there is no reason to panic. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. 
please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.